Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Advent has begun, and on this week's episode, Bishop breaks down this Sunday's readings, specifically the first reading from Isaiah and the Gospel from Mark. Here, Bishop talk about not only ways those two readings are connected, but also how, as we prepare for Christmas, we're reminded of our continual call to repentance and conversion. It's a way to prepare for Christ's birth, His second coming, and His present coming into our lives now through the sacraments, prayer, scripture, and other people. Then Bishop answers listener-submitted questions on the COVID vaccine, the importance of paying attention to mental health, and find out what Bishop would title his autobiography. If you have a question you'd like Bishop to answer or a topic for Bishop and Kyle to discuss on a future episode, you can submit it at RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop. Welcome back to another episode of Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman here with our Bishop. Uh, blessed Advent to you, Bishop. Same to you, Kyle. I love the Advent season. Do you say Blessed Advent, Happy Advent, Merry Advent? I usually say Blessed or okay. Advent, sometimes Happy Advent. Happy yeah. Advent. Okay, good. Uh, did you have Advent wreaths growing up? Yes, was that we did. a staple? Yep, it was a staple. In the Rhodes household? Yes. Did you fight over who gets to light the candle? I think we did. <laughs> Like yeah, every, we used to have like every, special prayers that we would say okay. during Advent around the Advent wreath before we had our meal. Uh-huh. Yeah, I remember that. Yes. That's good. We should find something like that to do as a family. Uh, do you have an opening prayer for us today? Yeah. Why don't we pray during Advent the the Marian Antiphon, the Alma Redemptoris Mater. Okay. It's typically prayed at the end of the day from the Liturgy of the Hours at the end of night prayer. It's a typical Advent Marian prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Loving Mother of the Redeemer, gate of heaven, star of the sea, assist your people who have fallen, yet strive to rise again. To the wonderment of nature, you bore your creator, yet remained a virgin after as before. You who received Gabriel's joyful greeting, Have pity on us, poor sinners. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I didn't recognize the name of that prayer whenever you said it, but that is probably my favorite Marian prayer. Oh, yeah. I just think the the word, the gate of heaven, star of the sea, and... by the wonder of all nature, you bore your own creator. Like just there's yeah. some really neat kind of poetic imagery there. Yeah, enjoy. Especially the Latin. Latin is so beautiful, isn't it? Should we pray <laughs> the Latin, Kyle? Yes. I, I uh, let me see if I have it all memorized still. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know what I like? We used to chant this in, in the Latin? Sem- in the seminary. The Latin. Yeah. Okay. But. You've heard me sing, so I don't want to, you know, torture you by singing this. I, I would. Maybe would, we'll get someone else. That in would here be the best to... Christmas gift you could give me, Bishop. Is, is a CD of you chanting? Oh yeah, well, I can do the through him, with him, in him. Okay, but after that, no. <laughs> Well, before we get too much into this episode, I want to thank this week's sponsor, which uh, Bert Brunner of Doolin Ward and Dewald Accounting Firm has sponsored an episode of Truth and Charity. So thank you, Bert, and all of your friends over at the accounting firm. We appreciate your support of Redeemer Radio and of 
Tree the Charity with Bishop Rhodes. But thought maybe today, as we are entering into Advent, we could take a look at some of those Advent readings, which I feel like we tend to go back to Isaiah. Is that for all of Advent, kind of first reading is Isaiah? Yeah, most of them, yeah. And then uh, I feel like sometimes... I see the readings, and you're like, I'm not sure where the connection is here between these. There's probably something that I'm missing, or they just kind of randomly pick some. This is pretty obvious how the first reading ties in with the gospel. Yeah, and I uh, I love these readings. As a matter of fact, I always like, Handel's Messiah comes into my mind as I read these, because uh-huh. I love Handel's Messiah, and some of these texts from Isaiah are uh, put to music by Handel, and you know, like I'm reading it, and all of a sudden, I'm hearing the music huh. that includes the the first reading that we'll hear this sunday the second sunday of advent coming up you know remember when we talked about the prophet isaiah and the book of the prophet isaiah on this program and uh, i had talked a little bit about the second isaiah the second book of isaiah which is called deutero isaiah mm-hmm. and this is one of my favorite parts of that that part of the book of the prophet isaiah Uh, where he announces to the people, the Israelites who were in exile in Babylon, remember, he announced that they'll be delivered, that they'll be liberated. Mm -hmm. And it's so beautiful. It begins, comfort, give comfort to my people, says your God. So it's just so beautiful. The, The prophet is saying this in God's name, comfort, comfort my people. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem Mm -hmm. and proclaim to her that her service is at an end. Her guilt is expiated. Indeed, she has received from the hand of the Lord double for all her sins. So basically, they've gone through these many years of captivity in Babylon, and the Lord is going to bring them back home to Jerusalem. They had kind of done their penance, I guess you could say. Hmm. And this is so nicely connects with the season of Advent when you think about it, especially the next part of the reading. And it goes on like this. A voice cries out, in the desert, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the wasteland a highway for our God. This is where I start thinking of Handel's Messiah. Okay. Every valley shall be filled in. Every mountain and hill shall be made low. The rugged land shall be made a plain, the rough country a broad valley. Then the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all people shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. In a way, we could say that in Advent, the church is raising her voice and saying that same thing, make straight in the wasteland a highway for our God. You know, it's the whole idea of how this prophecy from Isaiah, the historical moment was the people's return. They prepare the way of the Lord so they could go on a highway, a level highway back to Jerusalem from Babylon, mountains being made low, the valleys being raised. You know, it's, it's all of this, of course, becomes fulfilled as we'll hear in the gospel with, with Christ. And then it goes on to say, go up onto a high mountain, Zion, herald of glad tidings, cry out at the top of your voice, Jerusalem, herald of good news, fear not to cry out and say to the cities of Judah, here is your God, here comes with power the Lord God, who rules by his strong arm, 
Here is his reward with him, his recompense before him. Like a shepherd, he feeds his flock. In his arms, he gathers the lambs, carrying them in his bosom and leading the ewes with care. This is what the, the Lord wishes to do in Advent, to speak to our hearts, to all humanity, to proclaim salvation. So I think this is, uh, yes, as I said, this is all fulfilled in Jesus. And it's good to know the historical setting of Isaiah, you know, the, but now we see its fulfillment and, um, in Jesus, and we are to make straight the way for him. And that's what we see in the gospel. And this year, the gospel for the second Sunday of Advent comes from St. Mark, and it's really the very beginning of the gospel. You know, this is how Mark's gospel begins. It doesn't begin with the nativity. Mm -hmm. It begins with John the Baptist. So I'll read the, uh, the gospel for, for this coming Sunday, and you can immediately see the connection with the first reading. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I am sending my messenger ahead of you. He will prepare your way. A voice of one crying out in the desert, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight his paths. John the Baptist appeared in the desert, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. People of the whole Judean countryside and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they acknowledged their sins. John was clothed in camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist. He fed on locusts and wild honey, and this is what he proclaimed. One mightier than I is coming after me. I am not worthy to stoop and loosen the thongs of his sandals. I have baptized you with water. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. This is the beginning, as I said, of Mark's gospel. And the quotation from Scripture, which he starts with, he says, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, behold, I am sending my messenger ahead of you. He will prepare your way. That actually, that first sentence that Mark quotes is actually the prophet Malachi. Hmm. It's the rest of it that comes from Isaiah. So it's interesting. It was the prophet Malachi. He's kind of talking in general. And you know, the whole idea of God sending a messenger, the Hebrew word, it's the Hebrew word for angel, God sending an angel, a messenger. In, in the book of Exodus, God tells his people after their escape from Egypt that he's sending an angel before them to guard them on their way. So centuries later then, you have God speaking through Malachi to say that he was a sending a messenger to prepare the way for God's coming to his people on a day of the Lord. Well, now you have St. Mark presenting John the Baptist as God's messenger, uh -huh. okay? Sent to prepare for the Lord, for what God's about to do. Prepare the way for God. And in this case, it is the way for Jesus, who is God. You know, Jesus comes as God's agent to carry out uh, God's work. So then... He mentions the voice crying out in the desert, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight his paths. 
Well, that's what we heard in the reading from the prophet Isaiah. These are Isaiah's words. But there are adjustments here. Um, Isaiah announces that the exile of Israel in Babylon is coming to an end. It calls for a straight and level highway through the wilderness, from Babylon to Jerusalem, through the desert. And here we have the fulfillment, God coming in the person of Jesus and John the Baptist preparing the way. And it says, John the Baptist appeared in the desert. He appeared in the desert. He was proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. By the way, before this time, the word baptism didn't have any religious meaning. Hmm. I mean, the, the, the Hebrew word for baptism or baptize uh, or the Greek word for baptize really means to plunge, to immerse, to dip, to soak, you know, to wash. Okay. So it was kind of a secular word. But now it, you know, takes speaking of a baptism of repentance. This is a washing that took place. When you think about how the uh, Jewish people, they would, you know, have washing of their hands or washing of dishes, etc. But now we're talking of the washing away of dirt from the body as a symbol for the washing away of sins. Mm -hmm. This is a baptism of repentance. And by repentance, really, it means a change of, of thinking. It means not just change in actions, but also, or change in one's behavior. It also means a change in one's attitude. This is what conversion is. Sometimes what's needed is not just a change in behavior, but a change in mentality, in one's way of thinking. And that's basically what John was preaching. And this was for the forgiveness of sins. Before, the Jewish people would make these offerings in the temple. These were all the prescriptions of the Old Testament. This is how they sought forgiveness of sins. And John is kind of talking about uh, a different way. He talks about how one mightier than he will come and he will baptize with the Holy Spirit. So the real forgiveness of sins, John's baptism was kind of a preparation for this. It really did, it was symbolic. It was a symbolic washing away of sins after people repented. But this really didn't take effect. It didn't really purify people until Jesus. Because as, as John said, I've baptized you with water. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Of course, Jesus is God, and only God can forgive sins. So anyhow, I, would, I think this is, these are beautiful readings for Advent. It's important that we hear the words or the voice of John the Baptist, that call to conversion. There's no better way to prepare for Christmas than to examine our lives and open our hearts to prepare the way of the Lord in our own lives to make straight his paths. This is really important for the coming of the Lord at Christmas. How do we make straight his paths? When you think about it, there are a lot of crooked paths mm -hmm. that we can be tempted to walk and they get us off track. We can get off track in our Christian lives, fall into sin, walk along roads that deviate from our faith, no matter what it might be. We can stray from the path of the Lord. We can get lost we can stray away from the gospel. So it's good to think of Advent, okay, 
where do I need to get back on the right track? Mm -hmm. Am I preparing the way for the Lord and clearing the way for the Lord to act in us with his grace? The sacrament of penance, confession is a great way for all of us to heed the call of John the Baptist to repentance and conversion. There's also that issue of, of the, uh, the desert. I was, it's interesting how John's mission took place in a desert, hmm. that the Lord comes into that desert, the, and he comes into the desert of our lives to refresh us with the waters of salvation. There are a lot of kinds of deserts. Um, I remember Pope Benedict talking about the various deserts. It could be the desert of poverty, desert of hunger and thirst, abandonment, loneliness, the desert of God's darkness, the emptiness of souls, no longer aware of their dignity or the goal of human life. And Pope Benedict spoke about how these external deserts in the world are growing. I mean, Pope Francis talks about that too. And that's because of the internal deserts that have become so vast. And Christ comes and the church leads us out of the desert toward the place of life, towards friendship with the Son of God who gives us life and life in abundance. When you think about, when I think about the mission of the church, you know, that is our task to lead people out of the desert towards Christ, the source of living water. That's exactly what John the Baptist did. They People came through the desert, that's where he was, but then they came into the Jordan River and were baptized by him. So anyhow, that's something else to think about. And those two different baptisms, the baptism of water and the baptism by the Holy Spirit, are we to see those as like his, St. John the Baptist's baptism was like a, a symbolic almost like a, a fake baptism. And then, but now we have baptisms with the Holy Spirit because of Jesus, or is it a baptism versus confirmation, like the Pentecost being the baptism of the Holy Spirit and, and his was a baptism like our baptisms? Or was there something lacking in St. John the Baptist's baptisms? Yeah, it was, it was what, the first thing. It was symbolic. Okay. Okay, it wasn't taking away sins where the sacrament of baptism does. Okay. Okay. Not so. Therefore, it was uh, a baptism of repentance. So it had. I mean, it was true in the sense that people were repenting mm -hmm. when they went into the waters of the Jordan to be baptized by him. But it didn't accomplish the forgiveness of sins because that it couldn't. The actual forgiveness of sins comes from God. Mm -hmm. So Jesus instituted the sacrament of baptism. And when he himself is baptized? No, I'd say, well, why, what moment did he uh, institute the sacrament of baptism? It would really be, it's not easy to identify the exact moment, but it basically when he told the apostles to go forth and baptize. Okay. Okay, so it was after his death. Okay, that's very important huh. because this is a fruit of, of the redemption. Okay. okay the baptism that he came to bring, the baptism of the Holy Spirit could only take place after the death and resurrection of Christ. All right. Um, so all this was preparing. So I would say John's baptism had value. Mm -hmm. It was preparatory. It kind of prefigured what was to happen and how it would really become effective. 
that the forgiveness of sins would then take place through the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which is what we receive in the sacrament of baptism. Right. Oh. Through I, the water. I never knew that before. So yeah. Very helpful. Thank you. Another thing about Advent is we're not only preparing for Jesus' birth and the, the first coming, but also we're supposed to be preparing for the second coming. And I think that's a lot of what you're talking about, the making straight these crooked paths in our lives is to prepare for the second coming, preparing for our, our death. And it seems like lately there's been a lot of talk about end times, certain, I don't know if it's conspiracy theory or if there's some kind of religious bend to it, but you know, with coronavirus, with divisive politics, natural disasters, you know, global warming, whatever, all these things, some people are thinking that the second coming is going to happen soon. So I don't know if you have any thoughts on how, if we should respond to some of these kind of predictions or, you know, some might call them prophecies. Well, there've been these prophecies of, or that the end is near all throughout Christian history. Mm -hmm. There have been other troubled times of wars, of plagues, sure. of pestilence. Remember back in the year 2000, there was also <laughs> right. the thought. I mean, this keeps Within happening. Within the Mayan calendar, was that 2012 or yeah, something like I mean, that? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's and, and oftentimes, you know, it's various uh, different Christian sects or different people. And now kind of every now and then enters into the Catholic Church too by some people. And I think it's just a waste of time. You know, Jesus himself says, we don't know the day nor the hour. So we have to stop trying to predict it mm -hmm. because it's a waste of time. The whole thing Jesus is constantly teaching us is that we should always be prepared, always be vigilant, always keep watch. So I find that people who have all these variety of things to try to predict when the second coming will take place, it's, it to me is is taking the focus away from what it should be. We should be prepared every day mm -hmm. to meet the Lord. I would also want to mention something else about Advent because, yes, it's preparation for the celebration of Christ's birth, the first coming, and also it's anticipating the second coming that we should be prepared for at all times, and that's pretty much the theme of the first week or two of Advent. But there's a third coming, and I think you're alluding to the you alluded to this. It's not only preparing for Christ's second coming, it's Christ's present coming now into our lives. In other mm -hmm. words, if you read there's a beautiful reading of Saint Bernard of Clairvaux in the Liturgy of the Hours where he talks about the intermediate coming. So we have the first coming at Christmas, we have the second coming at the end of the world, what we call the parousia, but he comes now into our lives. So that's what we need to prepare for. For example, he comes to us, obviously, in the Eucharist. He comes to us in the scriptures. He comes to us through other people. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we need to welcome the Lord coming into our lives now. I think that's really important. We can encounter him in the face of the hungry and the poor and mm -hmm. the suffering. You know, we are to welcome Christ in them. So I think that's the other coming that we shouldn't lose sight of. You know, our God is a God who comes. Hmm. He is the God who comes. And I think it's important to, to remember, yeah, his coming into our world as a little child in Bethlehem, coming into the world as our Savior, 
And then the fulfillment, when we will have a new heaven and a new earth, the final coming, the second coming, when we'll have the universal judgment, always should be prepared for that. But the God who came 2,000 years ago into a stable in Bethlehem and who will come at the end of time comes to us now. He comes to us in the sacraments. He comes to us in prayer. He comes to us through the scriptures. He comes to us through the church. And that's um, important not to lose sight of. Well, and it's a good reminder to me, too, as a parent, to be emphasizing that with my kids as we prepare for Christmas, to really be mentioning a lot of those things and, and how can we enter into a relationship with Christ more fully yeah. as a as a practice and as a reminder and not just get caught up with the gifts and yeah. consumerism, Santa Claus, all that. Yeah. You know, do you ever think back? I think back to my childhood and yeah, there was an excitement about Santa. There was uh-huh. excitement about the presence. But I think when I was growing up too, I mean, there was a, there was a centrality in the family about the real meaning of Christmas. I mean, there was real joyful anticipation of going to mass on Christmas morning mm-hmm. or as time went on when the Christmas midnight mass, when we got older, yeah. there weren't Christmas vigil masses when I was a kid. Midnight would have been the first Mi- one. Yeah, Midnight would have been the first one. So as we got older, then our parents took us to midnight mass. Uh-huh. But I remember going Christmas morning, but that was always pretty much at the heart, you know, and we would sing at home too. the nativity scene mm-hmm. in that. I mean, that had, that was under the Christmas tree, but it was really important. Mm-hmm. I mean, we, we would sing, I think we would light a candle there. I mean, there was a, we all knew that was what we were celebrating. Yeah. And even though we enjoyed all the other customs, um, the, the spiritual meaning was, was really prominent. And that, uh, even to this day, that was joyful too. I mean, it it made the celebration deeper and more meaningful. Yeah, it, that doesn't need to be a a boring, sad part of Christmas. <laughs> like that right. should be something that we rejoice and celebrate yeah. as well. How do and, your kids get into the like the manger scene and the? And we that? have so many manger scenes. I don't know how. <laughs> you, you know, whenever you say that you like something, and all of a sudden everybody gets you that thing, or you collect and all of a sudden you have tons of these uh-huh. that's how we are with nativity sets <laughs> which is great because we can just put them all around the house you yeah. know and we've got little kids ones we've got stuffed ones and plastic ones and we've got nicer <laughs> ones that we set up a little higher and, uh-huh. and things that have been passed down from you know great grandparents and things like that too so yeah we've we've got plenty of them and we always hide the jesus yeah, okay. so it's just the nativity sitting out until Christmas, and then we, the kids get to put the Jesus out. Yeah, neat. So, how about with the Christmas tree? Do you do anything? You know, there is a blessing a family can do around of the Christmas tree. It's really a nice blessing. Oh, I'll have to look that up. Yeah, and even to have some religious ornaments is a good sure. thing. Yeah. Do you have that? Yep. And do you have a star or an angel on the top? Uh, neither. You don't have a star or an angel? What do you have on the top of your Christmas tree? Uh, just, a, just a little stem, a little stem that sticks up. <laughs> we always had a star. I yeah, don't know why. We did too. Yeah, but you don't now. Okay. I'll, you got to work on that. Put call. it on my list. <laughs> we'll get that for Christmas, maybe. Put it on. How about the Advent Ceremonial wreath? thing. Uh, yeah, Advent wreaths. We've, again, we've got like uh, a felt one that has like little Velcro. Oh, good. Uh, flames and stuff. Yeah. Okay. 
so the kids don't <laughs> don't set the don't house on fire themselves down. well the ages what are your kids ages now uh we're at two five nine and ten okay well yeah for the two-year-old you better watch the live flames okay <laughs> yeah <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much, Bishop. If anybody has questions for Bishop, you can go to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop or just text the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598. And we have some of your questions about problems with the COVID vaccine, mental health, and more coming up on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. When you're worried about your health, you go see a doctor. Worried about finances? Talk to the helpful folks at Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. You already share our values. Why not share in our savings? Notre Dame FCU. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman asking the questions that you've submitted for Bishop to respond to, like this question from Patrick from St. Pius X in Granger, who wrote, it appears as if a COVID vaccine should be available fairly soon. One problem for Catholics, however, is that several of the vaccine candidates have been produced using embryonic stem cell lines. Should we as Catholics decline to receive a vaccine that has been derived from an embryonic stem cell line and wait for a candidate that has been derived from other sources? Or does the societal good from receiving such a vaccine outweigh the problematic source the vaccine has been derived from? Well, of course, the church has uh, significant uh, instruction on this from mm -hmm. years ago. But I think, given the question, I think we should look at what is the situation right now with the development of the COVID vaccine. First of all, the first two that are going to be available as uh, very soon Neither of them come from aborted fetuses. Okay. Neither of them come of cell line from aborted babies. Now, if you probably know about other vaccines that have been created, especially for rubella, German measles, there was a lot of things. The only one available is one from a baby that was aborted back in the 1960s or 1970. Mm-hmm. And the child was not aborted for the purpose of making a vaccine. The child was... Um, was aborted for other reasons, mm -hmm. very, very tragically. Obviously, every abortion is a, is a tragedy. But since that was the only source for the vaccine for the German measles, rubella, the Vatican said that, yeah, it was immoral to use that stell line to develop the vaccines, but it did allow for parents to have their children immunized with that because it was considered very remote material cooperation with evil, mm -hmm. which is morally permissible. Well, we're not in that situation now, thanks be to God. We were worried about that, you know, the first vaccines for COVID that would come about would be those that are tainted, that derive from uh, unborn babies that were aborted mm -hmm. from, uh, and, but the two that are coming out first were not developed from uh, aborted fetal material. So I think when there will be a number of vaccines available after these first two, I imagine some of them would probably be from these aborted uh, remains. And I would say 
not to get those vaccines because you have a choice, right? You know, you can get them, those that were derived ethically. So that would be my recommendation. That'd be my answer to that question. I guess, hypothetically speaking, if the only option were from aborted remains, would this be considered remote enough that it would be okay to take the vaccination? Yes. Yes. I mean, that's been clear from the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith. Um, now, does that make it mandatory? No. But allowable? Yes. Okay. There can be no intention, you know, or, you know, the danger would be, okay, does that kind of a, receiving that kind of vaccine make it seem like, oh, it's okay to abort babies for that purpose? Well, no. We'd have to be very, very clear that. You know, the church opposes this. We oppose this in that scenario that you mentioned. Um, and um, certainly there would be we're totally against any abortions that could take place now mm -hmm. for that purpose. You know, that would be uh, very evil, very evil. Is there anything that we can do to suggest or, or promote the fact that the companies should look into other sources instead of using these? Yeah. Well, you know, early on with the COVID pandemic, we wrote to uh, these companies. I was one of the bishops who wrote because I'm chair of the Committee on Doctrine right. and to the FDA. Uh -huh. We recommended that funding only go to those companies that were not using these, these cell lines from aborted fetuses. So the church has been very active in, in uh, lobbying on this issue. And I think we need to continue mm -hmm. to try to convince these drug manufacturers, these vaccine producers, not to use such lines. All right. Our next listener submitted question. Bishop James Conley recently opened up about his mental health recovery. Prior to him sharing his struggle, were anxiety and depression something the U.S. bishops have been attentive to? You know what? I don't think so. I mean, I don't remember ever talking about you know, <laughs> you know. I guess men tend not to. Sure. Uh, you know, if we under if we struggle or bishops struggling with anxiety and depression, I don't remember it really being something openly talked about, or even among priests. And you know, I, there shouldn't be any stigma. Mm -hmm. You know, there shouldn't be stigma about mental health challenges. That's why I admire Bishop Conley yeah. so much. I mean, when he was struggling, it was what ten months ago mm -hmm. when he took the leave of absence, a sick leave. He was very open that he was struggling with these mental health issues. I think it was uh, primarily depression, maybe anxiety and depression, mm -hmm. and he needed help. He needed a break. And I think he went down to the Diocese of Phoenix and got the help he needed. He's been, you know, was on this leave of absence for like 10 months. He's feeling good now, and he's back in Lincoln, Nebraska. He's the Bishop of Lincoln. Mm -hmm. I think he's a really good example. It takes humility, though, to, yeah. to, to admit to, you know, struggles that we might have in our life, especially if they're mental health struggles. And yet it's such a really epidemic mm -hmm. of anxiety and depression. So what's good is he did get the help he needed. And I'd say anyone who's listening who struggles with these things, it's nothing to be ashamed of, mm -hmm. you know? And I think, um, I think he's just a good example uh, for us. And um, thanks be to God, he's recovered and, uh, and will continue to, we'll, we'll do well back in his diocese. 
Have you interacted with him much in the past? I mean, I know him. Uh, I mean, he wouldn't be a close friend, but someone who's a really good bishop. Very, I know he's a very prayerful man. Uh-huh. I was good friends with uh, Archbishop Paul Coakley, mm-hmm. and Archbishop Coakley was a close friend of Bishop Conley. So we kind of know each other <laughs> through Archbishop Coakley. I've had a chance to interview him, I think, at least twice, and just a very down-to-earth and, and friendly and I, just – knowing him a little bit and then see him being so public about this. I, I do think it's a great thing that he's willing to share because there's no, if you go through something like that, there's no need that you have to be public about it. You can just say, I need a break or whatever. Right. Uh, but to share that, I think it almost sets an example. Like this is okay that I'm struggling with this and you might be too. And it's okay for you to be struggling with it. And I think so often we don't want to, appear weak, yeah. you know, so either we don't get the help that we need to begin with, and if we do, we don't ever tell anybody that we got help, you right, know? And right. he sets a good example of, no, we're, we're all, yeah. we all need help in different ways. Yeah, know? yeah. And well, you know, I mean, there can be a lot of stress uh, in, in the, well, obviously in the life of a bishop, but others who hold, who, you know, have heavy responsibilities. And um, right. and sometimes you know, it's hard to carry those responsibilities. And you know, it's important to have, obviously, I'm sure Bishop Conley did, a good prayer life, but also good friends to rely on when you're going through hard times or, or trying to stay healthy. And that requires sometimes reaching out, mm-hmm. so um, to avoid these kinds of things. Uh, and if one does have these kinds of struggles, yeah, like you said to reach out for some assistance from others. And I know there's also a bunch of saints who have struggled with different mental illnesses and things. Maybe we could do a whole episode on that in the future sometime, just to highlight like some Saint of those. Like St. Dymphna. Right. Yeah. Patron saint of those with anxiety. Mental, yeah. I don't know. Who's the patron saint for those struggling with depression? Do you remember? I do not know. We'll have to look that up Future episode, time. maybe. Yeah. Okay, Eleanor Cranmer said, is there a good book on the life of Pope St. John Paul II? Yes, I think George Weigel's book, Witness to Hope, is the best. Okay. Now, he finished that. It's very thick, uh, but it's excellent. He finished it before Pope John Paul died, so Mm -hmm. he had to do a second volume and then a third. Okay. So, there's now like a three-volume set, so I I recommend them all. Um, I think the second one covers like the last couple years of his life. I'm trying to think what the third one was about. I, so it's have, different volumes, not different editions. Right, right. Advised or. Yeah, but that's the best. I mean, there's there's a lot a lot of biographies of John Paul II, but I think George Weigel's is the most thorough, okay. and it's the lengthiest. Okay. Any highlights from it? Well, he goes into a lot of detail. I, I love uh, various things about... When he was Archbishop of Krakow, I liked learning about his early life, uh, about how he stood up to the communist authorities when he was a bishop, mm-hmm. just how he handled getting elected pope. There's just a lot of great stuff. And, you know, it's you just get a lot of inside information, um, and you just recognize how truly holy he was. Did you read all three volumes? Yes. 
Yeah. As a matter of fact, uh, the well, the first one, which is the thickest, I don't know how many pages, like four or 500 pages, that took the longest to go through. And I read that very carefully. You know, the second and third, I, you know what, Kyle? I'm not sure if I read the third. I have to go back and look on my bookshelf to remind myself if I read those. But I know I read the first volume. Well, I guess also if... Uh, Sometimes I skim things, and I might have more skimmed the second and third, but the first one I read cover to cover. Uh-huh. We have a biography for kids. If anybody's looking for kids, maybe a Christmas gift or something like that. There's the story of St. John Paul II, a boy who became Pope, oh. Fabiola Garza, uh, did, who's an illustrator for Disney, wrote the story and, and did the illustrations. It's, it's a great one for kids. Oh, good. Too. good. That's more my reading level. <laughs> uh, I, like the, I like the kids' books. That's good. All right. Have you read Witness to Hope? Nope. No. no. no it's there's a very an, thick book. There's, there's some other good ones like, um, oh, what's the one? Who wrote the book about like the uh, five? The five loves? Five loves of John Paul. Um, Jason Everett. Jason Everett. That's yeah. good. Yeah. I think the very first time I met you, you recommended that book to me. Okay. I think you even took me down to the bookstore to get it, but it was out. And so really? you, so you okay. bought me a different book. But that Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I remember that. All right. Well, finally, someone asked, if you were to write an autobiography, what would be its title? Wow, I never got that question before. I mean, the, the first thing that comes to my mind is my Episcopal motto, Truth and Charity, mm-hmm. which is also the name of our, uh, of our, our show. Uh-huh. Um, but um, yeah, I think that would, but that's pretty much reflects my life as a priest and as a bishop. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's the only thing that really comes to my mind. Have you ever thought about writing down stories? No, because I have a terrible memory. Yeah. I'd have to ask other people, like my sister or my cousins who I grew up with, like my one cousin, Mary, like she remembers everything from our childhood. Uh-huh. I mean, unbelievable. Yeah. Like she'll mention things like when I was three and four, I have, I mean, or even six or seven, Uh I I don't remember. Yeah. You know, I'm like, I don't know why. I guess some people are better with memory. But you remember historical information and the popes and stuff like that. Yeah. But, but I know I'm better at remembering history than my own life. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, do you remember things when you were three and four years old? Not as well as my sister. Isn't that interesting? Uh, she she'll maybe girls all these details maybe yeah oh one thing my dad has been over the past i don't know i feel like 10 plus years he started writing down different stories from his life Uh, and it'd be great to compile in a a book someday but just to have some of those memories and be able to share those with his kids but for you to write down stories of even studying in I guess that's kind of what we're doing with this radio program every once in a while, getting out yeah. some of these stories and we'll have them in, in audio form. Well, sometimes when I look back at photos from childhood, uh-huh. then I remember things better. Okay. Or, you know, I'll, yeah, that's kind of, I think I have brain overload. I think that's why I have a hard time remembering things. You know? <laughs> yeah, I, I would assume you would have brain overload, so much to, to think about. So do you have the photo albums or would those be with somebody else? Yeah, I have, I have my own and then my sister has... I think a lot that my parents had before they died. So she would have more than I do. Okay. I'd have to look at those, but I do have some from where I have pictures as a kid. Yeah. First communion confirmation uh-huh. vacations. I remember a lot of photos from family vacations, things like that. Christmas. 
Yeah. Well, maybe we could do an episode where you're just flipping through the photo album telling us stories. Oh, I think it might be a little boring. (laughs) (laughs) I'd love to hear about your family vacations and Christmases. Okay. All right. Well, thank you so much, Bishop, for another episode of Truth and Charity. A reminder that people can submit their questions by sending a text to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598. And before we go, can we get your Episcopal blessing? Okay. Remember, everyone, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight his paths. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now and forever. Our help is in the name of the Lord. Who made heaven and earth. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Bishop. You're welcome, Kyle. Get access to all episodes of Truth and Charity and listen anytime by searching for Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes on your favorite podcast app, including Apple, Google, and Spotify. Hit subscribe so you don't miss a new episode. Or, more directly, you can find the entire archive by going to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop. While there, you can submit a question for a future episode. Next week, a special guest joins Bishop and Kyle in the studio to talk about encountering God through music, especially through the masterpiece Bishop referenced in this episode, Handel's Messiah, which is usually recognized by the famous Alleluia Chorus, just in time for Advent and Christmas. Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes is brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. What's the difference between Notre Dame Federal Credit Union and a bank? Well, banks are owned by investors looking to make a profit. Notre Dame FCU is different. We are a not-for-profit member-owned cooperative. Our mission is to help our members improve their lives by providing products and services to save them money. If we end up with too much money ourselves, we simply give it away to our members' favorite charities. Last year, over a million dollars. You already share our values. Why not share in our benefits? Notre Dame Federal Credit Union.